than missing you every day. I'm I'm pretty good. There it is. Nice. Yeah. Hawkins. Where's Hawkins? Uh, it's my. I used to work for. It's just a. It's just a beanie man. My head's just cold. <laughs> Not nah, in Indiana. It's where Stranger Things took place. That is also correct. Yeah. Yeah. That was my second question. Oh man. LeBeau, I'm glad you could join us. Yeah, no, glad to be here for sure. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was in. I was always in. I just, I think I just forgot the response. Oh, you're good. <laughs> That's uh, not surprising at all. Oh, <laughs> there we go. Perfect timing. Hey, man, how's it going? Hey, guys, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank all you right, for joining beautiful. us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Let me just turn you guys up really quick. Sure. All right, there we go. Yeah, I'm, uh, awesome. I'm digging the jerseys you have going on back there. Yeah, thank you very much. I've been working on that this year, um, all my MPB jerseys. I don't have a favorite team in MPB, but I have some favorite players, so I've been collecting them. Nice. Yeah, I got on uh, my Otani jersey for the special occasion. Oh, let's so. fucking go, man. Let's fucking yeah, go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, nice. me uh me too. I have my my Otani jersey on. Oh yeah. <laughs> um I don't. That's the Green Lantern. Yeah, yeah close enough. They can't see us, you know, they yeah. have to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I don't know how much time you got, but uh you know, pretty straightforward obviously. I kind of gave you the lowdown just general like Sox uh Red Sox players that have like played over in Japan or uh, like a few free agents and that type of stuff. So there might be one or two curveballs in there, but not, nothing that I don't think you could probably handle. But, yeah, I was checking out your stuff today, um, even a little bit earlier, and um, definitely uh, was real excited about everything. Curveball? Is that a baseball joke? Uh, I know, right? Full of puns. <laughs> hey, this is Joe Castiglione, and you're listening to Not Another Sox Podcast. Can you believe it? Are any of them going to outpitch Matt LeBeau? No. Buenas noches, amigos, and welcome to another episode of Not Another Sox Podcast. I am Jack Webster here with uh, Ian Doran, Matt LeBeau, and a special guest today, uh, the Yaku Cosmopolitan himself, um... So welcome aboard. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, your channel, and uh, how you kind of got into the whole thing? Yeah, so hey, everyone. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so my name's Yuri Kurosawa. Um, I'm half Japanese, but I'm born and raised in the U.S. Um, and back in 2020, during the pandemic, I saw Foolish Baseball, Foolish Bailey. He tweeted out something that was along the lines of, you know, if you want to become a content creator in baseball, MLB is kind of oversaturated. So there could be a market for people covering the KBO or MPB in English. And while I've been following Japanese baseball for a lot of my life because I have the, you know, ethnic kind of connection, I've been going in and out of Japan for, for a long time. I currently live in Japan. And so I thought maybe this is something I can take on. So I started really trying to um, cover MPB as best I can in English. First, it was just on like Reddit, but then I moved on to YouTube and now I have, um, an even bigger following on X. And then I also, um, contribute part time to japanball.com. So if you guys like ever want to have guided tours in Japan for baseball stadiums, definitely check out, uh, japanball.com. That's awesome. And we, we do refer to it as Twitter in this household. We don't have to be technically correct about it or right. anything. So in, in that uh, case, then yeah. we'll just go. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, first question, um, why hasn't uh, Yamamoto signed with the Red Sox yet? Yeah, well, great question. Um, <laughs> I guess the winter meetings coming up would be a, you know, I guess that's when we're expecting some news to, to come out. It's possible that it would be later than that, but Masataka Yoshida signed um, at the winter meetings last year. I believe Kodai Senga was close to that as well. Yamamoto has 45 days since he was posted. 
and the deadline is, I think, January 4th. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's we're coming up on the one-month deadline now. And, yeah, I mean, I you know, uh, I think the Red Sox are definitely one of the top three or four suitors for him, whether they actually land him or not. I mean, you guys probably know better than, than, than I can about, um, you know, Breslow's tendencies or, or anything else. God, I hope so. It's just who wants to spend John Henry's money at this point, right? Because the money is there. The prospects for trading are there, even though I know that doesn't have to do with Yamamoto. But the money is there to spend. As long as Breslow is willing to spend the money, I think I think we see Yamamoto move to Boston, and I think we see another few big pickups here and there. Obviously, you know, the big guy on the market is Otani. Um, we don't have too much hope for him over here. If he does, we'll be over the moon. But um, obviously, he's probably the biggest star in baseball right now. So can you talk a little bit just about, like, the scope of how big he is in Japan and, like, almost how much of a legend he is already? Yeah, so Yamamoto and, and, and Otani both, I mean, the fact that you have two Japanese players that are, like, one and two in the MLB free agent class. That's like something we've never had before. Obviously there's been big Japanese free agents go over. You've had like Masahiro Tanaka a decade ago was, was a huge name, but you know, Otani is just on a, on a whole different level. Uh, anyone who, you know, saw games at the world baseball classic would tell you that just watching his batting practice, he's like a whole different beast, right? Like the way he just goes you know, 450, like every single batted ball. It's just like, it's insane. He's, he's not human. Uh, and it's even more incredible that, you know, he's a, a two way guy and he's not even going to be doing the fishing thing next year. And he's still probably going to be getting over 500 million. Um, so yeah, he's Otani's all over, um, you know, all the billboards in Japan, all the ads. Everyone loves Otani. Uh, and as far as Yamamoto goes, you know, Yamamoto, I would say, has compiled a resume in MPB that uh, stands up against any pitcher in, in history. Um, he's right up there in the modern era with Yu Darvish and Masahiro Tanaka, but I think Yamamoto's been a little bit better than those guys even. Um, and then even if you go, like, way back in the day, it's like, obviously, um, he doesn't have the innings totals as some, like, old-timers, but inning per inning, like... 1.82 career ERA with like a 237 FIP, an 094 WHIP. I mean, these are just sick numbers. Granted, MPB is in a dead ball era right now, but they've had plenty of those throughout history. Like MPB has just always been a lower scoring environment than MPB than MLB. So um, I think Yamamoto is going to be an absolute beast in MLB. Do you um do you feel that um the success that you know, Daisuke had, Koji had, um, even, I mean, Hideo Nomo, Junichi Tozawa. Like, do you feel that that is a draw for Yamamoto with Boston or even anywhere else, realistically, that has had successful, specifically pitchers from Japan? Yeah, so I definitely think having so many Japanese players in uh, franchise history helps. I think the Red Sox have, like, the third or fourth most Japanese players ever uh, in MLB history. Um, and something that really stands out to me with Boston is I think back in 2021 when Hirokazu Samamura first signed with Boston, he said something along the lines of the media was kind of doubting the Red Sox chances this year, but that I'm really confident because, uh, Koji Uehara was telling him like, oh, this, the media was saying the same thing about the 2013 Red Sox and look how far we got. So Samamura was feeling really confident about Boston. I don't know how many other different teams offered him a contract, but, and, you know, lo and behold, the Red Sox ended up doing really well in 2021. So um, I think for Yamamoto, you know, the media is going to be saying a lot of stuff about, oh, he wants to go to somewhere that has a Japanese player already. He wants to go somewhere that doesn't have a Japanese player. I don't think, I think all that is, you know, maybe a bonus for him if he has like Yoshida there, who he's already familiar with. But ultimately, I think he wants to go to a place where He's going to be comfortable. He can settle in, and he's going to be able to have the most success for himself. And, you know, the Dodgers, the Giants, the Red Sox, those have been very familiar kind of markets for for Asian players. Um, And they're not as, you know, the fan bases are very passionate, obviously, but you don't have the same kind of, like, if you fail immediately, you're going to get kind of, 
screwed over by your fan base, kind of like in, in New York or Philly, where they're really harsh on you. So <laughs> I think Boston might be a pretty good landing spot for him. So what you're saying is um, Yankees reserving number 18 for him doesn't matter at all, right? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll eat my words if, if it comes to it, but I don't think Yamamoto is going to be a Yankee for whatever reason. Oh, knock on Yeah, yeah that might be the soundbite for today's episode. God, I hope so. Yeah, I hope not. I'm going to, you know, cross my fingers, but I, I don't want him to I, – I see him as much more of a Dodger than, than a Yankee for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a, and a Red Sox more than a Dodger for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much a done deal at this point. I mean, uh, we're we're just kind of waiting on the, the ink on the paper. Yeah. Technicalities, right, yeah. right, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, do they have a different way of evaluating Japanese baseball players? Um, I, I asked that because you mentioned you're a huge stats guy, and I know Japan follows follows MLB stats pretty pretty closely, almost to a T. I didn't know if Japan included any other stats or, or followed any other numbers that maybe we're not as aware of here in the States. Yeah, so MPB is, I mean, it's getting better these days, but at the end of the day, they still are very traditional when it comes to the main numbers that the layman fan looks at and also the media looks at. So Anytime you see like a player's achievement on, on television, they'll just display like, oh, he won this many games, right? So it's still like wins are still like the king stat in Japan. And luckily for Yamamoto, he's had the most wins in uh, MPB for three straight years. So uh, he's great in that domain, but uh, he's also won three straight triple crowns. And obviously that's a huge achievement as well. The only kind of stat in general that Japan has uh, that MLB doesn't is called hold points HP, which is basically the same as holds in MLB for a relief pitcher, but it's like you don't need to preserve a lead. It's just kind of if you like come in in relief and you keep it scoreless or whatever. So that's the only stat that I know of that MPB teams like really look at as opposed to MLB. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, all the other advanced numbers are available. People who are a bit more like sabermetrically minded look at those, but um, the the main the main media doesn't really kind of get into advanced numbers. That's awesome. Uh, one guy obviously that was very big in Boston for a long time was uh, Daisuke Matsuzaka. Obviously was a legend over there. And coming over, I, I know that um, was probably a little bit before he started covering Japanese baseball and everything. But we always heard about this performance in uh, Kyoshin where he threw like 250 pitches or something like that. So um, for our audience that might not be familiar, do you mind like going over like how big that tournament is over there and just like how significant um, somebody like that um, uh, or like a performance like that was even at the time? Yeah, so the Japanese um, summer Koshien is like basically everyone compares it to March Madness in, in the States, right? So it's like, uh, they have a spring competition as well, but the summer one's really huge where um, all the teams, rep- you have one team representing every prefecture, two for the big ones of like Tokyo and Osaka area, but uh, they all compete in a single elimination tournament. And that's really where legends are made. Like if you perform really well at the Koshien, you're probably going to be a high draft pick or at the very least, your name is already going to be etched into history, even if you end up being a flop. Um, at, at the pro level, there's been plenty of guys that don't really have much of a big career in MPV or MLB, but because of their performance at, at Koshien, they're always going to be remembered. Uh, and with Daisuke, yeah, I mean, the, the amount of mileage this guy had on his arm before he ever put on a Red Sox uniform was insane. This guy had to throw, like you said, like 250 pitches in a 17 inning performance when he's 17 years old. Then he has to, you know, like the previous day, he had already thrown 150 pitches. Then he comes in the following day in relief and he finishes the job. So Daisuke, I think, had thrown something like 700 pitches in a two-week span, which can't be good for your arm, obviously, right? Like, I know, you know, this was a slightly different era, but you have to know that making a, a young kid throw 700 pitches in two weeks isn't good. And then he goes to uh, the Cebu Lions, and he's just – He's one of the best raw talents ever to to grace the mound. Uh, at 18 years old, he strikes out Ichiro three times in a game, 
which is like already like that was like him announcing himself like I'm here I've arrived but he throws like so many innings um from 1999 to 2006 uh he definitely has a lot of great years in there MPB was in a slightly uh inflated scoring environment at the time this was a livelier era so his numbers look a little bit worse than a guy like Yamamoto but he was like a stud uh and he won plenty of awards accolades so you know when he goes over to to the Red Sox, first year, uh, 2007, right, is, I mean, I'd like you guys to definitely talk talk more about that and how Daisuke was, was perceived, because I know the ERA was a bit inflated, but he has, you know, contributions uh, in, like, the postseason, and then the year after that was obviously really good. Definitely. I mean, I uh, I, can, I can tell you, Daisuke, the, the popularity and just the hype around him um, when he came to Boston was unheard of and we also had never heard of or had experience as a, an American sports fan dealing with the idea of like almost like a transfer fee like you see in in, in European sports like soccer um, so when people in New England heard that the Red Sox needed to post a, a massive amount of money just to even have a you know contract negotiation with him that was like so foreign to baseball fans here um, he had a lot of big contributions his first year I was at the game when he um he faced Ichiro, and the Mariners came to to Boston, um, and just like the media hype around that was was awesome. And he also had a an, uh, World Series RBI before Alex Rodriguez, so that was uh, a <laughs> that's yeah. that's my favorite dice gay dice gay stat. Yeah, I mean it wasn't only him on that team. Also, um, Hideki Okajima, I believe, was the first Japanese uh, pitcher in the World Series. Yeah, Hideki Okajima. Um, is actually one of the very few players, I think, that put up better numbers in MLB than he did in MPB. So, uh, yeah, Kiyoshi Shinjo was the first Japanese player in the World Series, but Okajima was the first pitcher. And, yeah, I mean, he had some some legendary performances, obviously not even throwing much harder than, like, 87, but his pinpoint command and, and that split finger, uh, yeah, Okajima was, was a great pitcher um, for you know, the back end of his career there with, with the Red Sox because he started his career with the Yomiuri Giants in Japan. Uh, he was always very good, but not really elite to the point where you would think he could make it in, in MLB, but he proved everyone wrong. Is it just me, or is the World Baseball Classic awesome? And I, I say that because I want to know, when it came down to the final between Japan and USA, which team you were rooting for? Oh yeah, man. The world, world baseball classics, my favorite, uh, you know, baseball, anything. Awesome, like, dude. Yeah. Any, any level of baseball is my favorite. Yeah, it's just so awesome. And yeah, for me, because even though I'm, I'm half American, half Japanese, because I cover the Japanese players on a day to day basis, like my loyalty was to them. I had to go for <laughs> Japan. Um, and I mean, but either way, we got such a great finals. Uh, championship game that yeah it, it was the whole tournament was just so good this uh, this past year yeah I, I was actually uh, in Miami for both the Japanese and uh, Mexico game uh, where obviously we got to see Yamamoto and Roki Sasaki who I'm sure we'll get to at some point in this episode as well but I, I was cheering for him against Mexico and um, just so I could kind of watch um, the U.S. play them the next day, and I, I did have to change jerseys. Um, I, I can't root against my own boys, but uh, you even mentioned before just watching Otani's batting practice, and it was insane just how many um, Japanese people came in just for that game, probably spent hundreds if not thousands of dollars, and they were so respectful, and it was just such a great culture uh, that you're not really used to seeing at a baseball game with all the drums and the singing and everything. So um, uh, why do you think that's a little bit different in Japan than uh, what we see in the United States, which is kind of more of like a normal type of crowd? And I'm actually going to jump in here because it was really funny to watch um, because obviously we're all big baseball fans here. Our buddy Jack Webster would be on the couch wearing one jersey and then he would get up, go in the other room, come right back out in another jersey and be rooting for a different team five minutes later in the next game. Or he would wake up at 4 a.m. to, like, switch jerseys and, and root for another team. Uh, yeah. It was really funny. He, yeah, but you're our favorite, Hardo. Yeah. But sorry, Jack, not to steal your thunder. Um, 
uh, Japanese culture at games and in stands. If you could elaborate on that a bit for us. Yeah, so baseball culture in Japan definitely way different in than in than in the U.S. as is like Korea, um, and you know I guess in in the Latin countries as well you can you can have a much more kind of I, I would really say you know I, I like going to games in the states minor league MLB but there's a bit of a hostile environment obviously to opposing teams right and it can be uncomfortable for the opposing team. And that's the appeal of it. Like, you're going to get booed. You're going to have shit said at you. In MPB, you have some drunk fans that might, you know, throw out the occasional insult. But in general, it's very respectful, which I guess, you know, um, the historian Robert Whiting would argue that this is, like, baseball reflects a a Japanese kind of collectivist kind of culture. Um, But, yeah, you have cheering sections in the outfields where on on one end you have the road fans and on the other end you have the home fans and um when it's the road team's turn to bat the home team just shuts up and they just let the road team cheer and you know they they have their turn and then once the home team's back up they switch sides and it's really just kind of it's it's a positive kind of vibe you get the the whole game it's just like oh everyone's just cheering Obviously, you want your team to win, but um, it definitely was a challenge for a lot of Japanese guys like Roki Sasaki, who had never thrown on an international mound before, to go into Miami and to have this kind of rowdy Miami crowd, uh, something that they weren't used to at all. Um, and it, it was a big concern going into the game uh, for, for many of the, the Japanese players who didn't have international experience, but... Yeah, I mean, I was able to go to all the games in Tokyo. Would have loved to go to the games in Miami, but that's. Um, I'm glad you guys were there on my behalf. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of eerie watching, especially some of those like early WBC games in Japan, where the crowd was just completely silent until Yamamoto or Suzuki or Otani threw a pitch, and then you would get some general clapping, and then right back to silence again. So. Um, I'm kind of glad that, uh, you know, you kind of mentioned not only in Japan and Korea and Latin countries that we do get a little bit more of different taste of um, the different um, styles of baseball. So um, it, it's something that um, if you haven't checked out as a listener, uh, definitely recommend uh, rewatching one of just the old uh, WBC games. They're just right on YouTube and uh, just kind of getting a taste of, you know, how much of a different atmosphere it is. Um, but uh, speaking of uh, WPC superstars, uh, obviously um, we had our own in uh, Masataka Yoshida. Uh, probably should have won uh, WBC, WBC MVP. We're not going to say anything bad against Otani, but um, he had a bit of a very interesting first season. Obviously uh, he gets posted and signs right away, which I don't think anybody, including Red Sox fans, were quite expecting. And then uh, he flies to uh, Arizona or uh, to Florida for spring training, flies back to Japan, flies back to Florida, and then has the whole season. So do you think like all that travel and all the extra, you know, distance that you have to go compared to Japan kind of uh, changed the way that he was, especially later on in the year? Oh, it absolutely did, because you just look at this guy's first half stats and second half stats and. Um, he had an, he had a 306 average with an 834 OPS, um, at home as well. So he, he was great at Fenway, uh, but first half 890, uh, 874 OPS and then second half 663 OPS. So obviously second half for him just, just wasn't it. I've never seen him struggle for such a prolonged period of time, but it definitely had a lot to do with MLB season being longer. Um, and all the ag- that extra travel he had to do because as soon as he went to MLB, um, you know, right around this time last year, I was doing like my my roster predictions for the WBC, and I just crossed Yoshida's name off my list because I assumed there's no way he's gonna play for Samurai Japan because guys that go over to MLB in their first year typically don't. You have a guy like Kodai Senga who really wanted to play for Japan. He was on the all-world team at the 2017 WBC, but he couldn't because he was going to the Mets. So for Yoshida to want to play for Japan that badly, that he would sign with the Red Sox, play a few spring training games with them, fly all the way back to Japan, then fly all the way to Miami, and then, you know, finish out spring training, get the regular season going, 
and then just the first half performance he had on top of that, nearly all-star level, uh, nearly had the had the batting title there with Bo Bichette for a while, and then obviously ends up falling off. But yeah, it was a really I think interesting experience for him. He was on a Japan series broadcast just a couple of weeks ago talking about his rookie season. Um, and I think he was obviously disappointed in the way that it ended. The biggest difference, as you know, anyone would expect, is that Velo is just much faster in MLB. So the fact that he has to constantly adjust to that uh, while also stry- trying to stay physically strong and, you know, mentally not not losing uh, a step like that was definitely not easy for him. But I expect him to put up some great numbers in 2024. Is the travel is I mean, is there a, a lot less like flying? I mean, can do they do buses more? I mean, I would imagine. Right. Yeah, well, the main thing is, like, Japan's the size of California, so you can travel, and you can travel to most places by by train, so um, it's just a much comfier kind of, you know, you're not going to put a, a physical toll on your body through through the travel, whereas MLB now, especially with their, you know, new interleague schedule going to all, te- playing every team, uh, it's just so much travel across the whole continent, and um, yeah, I, I have to imagine that that definitely took a toll on his body. Do you think Yamamoto practices by standing next to trains, and when trains come, he tries to throw the ball faster than the train? <laughs> that would be like, I, I, if, if Yamamoto was born in like 1950, <laughs> that would be a really good way for him to, to really check, because I, I imagine he'd throw faster uh, than the train's going. Well, if he's not doing it now, he's not trying hard enough. Yeah. So, kind of speaking of that, too. Um, what? I, no, no, not uh, it's related to Yamamoto, not related to any trains or anything like Aww. that. So, kind of like growing up, especially with Daisuke and some of the other Japanese pitchers, the whole thing you would ever hear on, like, American broadcast is, like, oh, he kind of has, like, a hitcher or a pause in his delivery. But with Yamamoto, he's almost pitching out of the stretch the entire time. There's no leg kick. He just kind of goes and throws. So um, what kind of went into that since it's very unusual to see really anywhere? Yeah, so actually up until last year, he did have a big hitch in his delivery. He would have a pause there for about a second. He used that as a timing mechanism to thrust forward. Uh, and then just out of nowhere this past winter, he just decided to get rid of it and just throw out of the stretch all the time. And with like a really lip, like a small leg kick that almost looks like he's just playing toss, kind of like Brutzel Gratterall, I guess. Um, you know, not quite to that extent, but he's just very, it's a very smooth kind of elegant delivery, not something you see very often from a Japanese pitcher. And certainly when you had, when he had already won back-to-back triple crowns, it was like, well, why are you changing something if it's not broken? But what it actually did is it made him a much better pitcher um, at preventing the running game. So he did have a slight problem in the past of allowing stolen bases. That was completely eliminated this year. Not that he gave up many base runners in the first place to steal, but um, so he was much better at preventing the running game. And I have to think that maybe... The pitch clock in MLB, maybe he was already kind of planning ahead to that. Obviously, I can't say for sure, um, but, you know, that that might have something to do with it. I'm looking at, like, his pitch tempo stats uh, from this year, and it's, like, half a second faster than it was in, in the past. So uh, that, that could have played into it, or he was just kind of just tweaking his mechanics in general to, um, you know, get better. Um one one question about the pitch counts. Obviously, <clears throat> I know uh, it, the game has changed all across the, the planet. Pitch counts are getting lower and lower. But in Japan, I mean, they're, they're still higher than what we see here. Do you think sometimes guys have, have trouble coming over and, and, and being limited so much and, and tracked so much, and, and that almost be like a, a detriment to them and kind of struggle with that transition? Yeah, it definitely could be. Um, one thing I will say, though, is that, MPB runs on a, on a six-man rotation, and Mondays are always off. So you basically have a day of the week that you're just assigned to pitch, and you pitch, you know, you, you might throw more pitches than an MLB pitcher would in a game, but then you get, like, that extra rest day. So at the end of the year, 
Uh, it kind of evens out in terms of how many pitches you're throwing, although, you know, most would still say throwing, you know, like 120 to 130 pitches every start is probably going to be worse for your arm than if it's spaced out. Uh, and with Yamamoto, um, looking here, he made 23 starts this year, and it looks like 21 of them he threw over 100 pitches, which in, in the modern MLB environment you probably – aren't going to see, they're probably going to limit his pitch count a lot more than that as, as they should, you know, to kind of pace him along, um, get him, you know, used to a, a longer uh, MLB season. Cause he's going to be making four or five more starts than he ever would in uh, MPB. But yeah, I can, I can definitely see how a player might think, you know, I'm being limited. I'm not being able to perform to my fullest potential if the hook is so uh, much quicker in MLB. Then I, I have to ask you as a as a fan and a strategist, do you think teams should consider six man rotations as opposed to the typical five man? And I know some teams have six man, but should six man be the standard? Yeah, so I think you know you have teams like the Angels that have to employ it because of Otani, but then you also have I mean like I'm a, I'm a Giants fan and we basically only had two starters this year, so You're everyone what? else was a was an opener. Um, and then, you know, the, the bulk innings guy comes in. Um, and, you know, I think in terms of like postseason play in recent years, we've seen that you don't really need to have that many like great starters to really win the World Series. You can kind of just uh, as long as you have a couple of good starters and then a couple of good guys in the bullpen, you can probably find a way to to win games. It's about finding a way to get through that 162 in the regular season. Um, without having, you know, so much stress on on the arm that that you end up regressing, which is what ended up happening to to the Giants down the stretch, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, if a team has six capable starters and they have depth at that position, I definitely think MLB teams should consider it. That way, they could probably let them go a little bit deeper into games um, without having to worry as, as much about pitch count. So I hate to be too talkative. I'm going to hit you with two in, two in a row because you said you're a Giants fan. I'm curious why. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I mean, I'm from Las Vegas personally, but my family on the American side is from San Francisco, Bay Area. So that's gotcha. where that comes from. Hometown. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I feel like Giants fans and Red Sox fans have – a, a secret kind of unity just because you guys hate the Yankees, we hate the Dodgers, and, you know, we're a little bit overshadowed by the bigger markets. So um, I, I definitely – I have no animosity towards towards the Red Sox, a lot of animosity towards the Dodgers and, and the Yankees. Yeah, we definitely feel the same way. Um, also, just beautiful ballpark, uh, beautiful ballparks too, which um, I think plays a factor in it. Obviously, having a lot of success in the 21st century too. So uh, it's kind of like you know your uh, West Coast buddies out there. Like, there's no animosity at all. Yeah, buddy. Um, but we do have a few other uh, Japanese free agents coming over. Usually, you know, we're used to seeing just one big guy or somebody a little bit under the radar, but uh, probably the bigger name out of uh, the other guys coming over is uh, Imagnata. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, he's a little bit more of a mystery to a lot of fans compared to the hype of Yamamoto and Otani and a few other guys. So what can MLB fans kind of expect from him uh, coming over? Yeah, so Shota Imanaga is a guy that when he first debuted – uh, with the DNA base stars in 2016, he threw like 88 miles an hour. Nowadays, he's up to like 93. So he's definitely done a really good job at increasing his velo ever so steadily every season. But the main thing with him is if you look into, you know, the, the pitch data is he has incredible induced vertical breaks. So rise on his fastball. And a lot of guys like Eno Saris really talked about how his stuff at the World Baseball Classic was just off the charts. It ranked even higher than Yamamoto on his stuff plus metric. So he has a, a great fastball, even though it's only, you know, it's maybe only MLB average velocity, but the, the rise he has on it is great. And then he has um, two really good uh, off-speed weapons in the changeup and slider. He does have a slight home run problem. Part of that is he plays at a, at a hitter's park, but... Uh, he he will give up his fair share of homers in um, MLB, 
Um, you know, I kind of see him as maybe Andrew Heaney, like Andrew Heaney on a good day is like super dominant, but if he's bad, he's going to give up a bunch of home runs. So, uh, I think MLB trade rumors has his contract estimate, like five years, 85 million, which is actually more than Kodai Senga got, which is interesting to me because Senga was a much better pitcher than Imanaga in Japan. But yeah, Imanaga started the, the championship game against USA there. Uh, at the WBC. So I think Imanaga can be a solid, like, middle rotation guy in MLB. Nice. And there's a few other guys that are coming over, mostly relievers. Um, I don't remember the names off the top of my head, but um, is there, like, anybody else that maybe we should be looking out for that, you know, the average American fan isn't really familiar with? Yeah, so as far as, like, MPV guys going over, um, you also have Yuki Matsui, who is a, a lefty closer for the Rakuten Eagles. Um, another guy who we just talked about with Koshien. He was a big Koshien hero, actually a starter back then, but he's had a great career as a reliever, uh, actually became the youngest player in MPB history to reach 200 saves this past year. Uh, another guy with great fastball rise. So he's a little guy, like only like five foot eight, and the fastball is only like 92, but great rise on the fastball. And then the forkball slider is, is, is a great combo. So uh, the one problem with Mitsui is that he struggled in the exhibition games leading up to the WBC using an MLB baseball. So um, MLB baseballs are slightly bigger and they're much slip, more slippery. They're not as tacky as the MPB balls. So he struggled to adjust to that during the tournament. So, you know, obviously he's going to get a lot more time to adjust in MLB, but that's something to to note. Um, there's also Naoyuki Uesawa of the Nippon Ham Fighters who's coming over. Um, I'm kind of surprised that he's even, like, getting an offer, but apparently the Orioles are offering him uh, a deal. And, you know, he's an, at best the number five starter in, in MLB. Um, I, I hope he proves me wrong, but I don't think he's going to have much success. I see him as kind of a... Kohei Arihara came over a couple years ago, and he ended up signing with the Texas Rangers. Did not do well at all. He had like a 7 ERA. Um, but, you know, his stuff is a little bit better than Arihara, so so we'll see. And then the final guy who I think the Red Sox are actually in on is Yariel Rodriguez, or Jario Rodriguez. He's a Cuban guy who played in Japan for uh, about three seasons. He's a swingman. He's been a starter in the past, but he's most dominant as as a reliever. Didn't play in 2023 because uh, he defected from Cuba right after the WBC in Miami. And with his team in Japan, the Chunichi Dragons, they have a contract with uh, the government of Cuba. So he can't go back to Japan if he defects Cuba. So he didn't play at all in 2023. But in 2022, as a reliever, he was really good. 115 ERA, uh, great strikeout numbers, didn't give up a single home run. So... Um, if you know Robert Suarez for the San Diego Padres, he might have that kind of like instant success where he Suarez was also like a mediocre starter in Japan. Then he became a dominant reliever and then he became really good uh, with the Padres. And then another comp I have for Rodriguez is uh, Christian Javier of the Astros in terms of like it's a really limited arsenal. He really only has like the fastball and the slider, but He's really explosive, so I could see him having that kind of really high-end success. And I think the Red Sox uh, were were scouting him just the other day. Uh, awesome. Well, uh, hopefully we see those guys come over and hopefully, uh, you know, see him sign soon. Obviously, the posting window is a little bit different than that. But there are um, a few other guys that obviously a lot of American fans are excited to see in the future. I see both of the jerseys right there behind you, so... Uh, we'll get into the first guy here, uh, Roki Sasaki. Uh, he's already kind of making a legend of himself, uh, even in the States over here. Um, so I think people kind of see like him throw that perfect game and the 102 mile per hour fastball and the WBC. But what should we know about this guy? Yeah. So Roki is, is special. There's never been anyone like him in Japan. And really, I mean, there's very few like him ever in like world baseball history. Um, coming out of high school, already throwing 100 miles per hour with great command. Uh, and then, you know, he finally makes his debut um, as a 20-year-old, or as a 19-year-old, rather. And then uh, in 2021, 
last year is when he has his or 2022 is when he has his first like huge breakout with that perfect game that you mentioned 19 strikeouts including Masataka Yoshida three times Masataka Yoshida never strikes out three times in a game Roki strikes him out three times in a game and then gets 16 other players to to punch out so that was incredible but then he comes back the following day uh, the following start uh, and he throws eight more perfect innings with 14 strikeouts so you know People can say MPB, not as good as MLB, sure, but it's a very high-level league. It's definitely 10 times better than AAA, uh, and it's getting better and better every year. And for this guy to come out and throw 17 straight perfect innings as a 20-year-old was just absolutely insane. And then this year, um, he unfortunately got injured halfway through, so he didn't really get to finish it out, but uh, he had a 1.78 ERA with a 40% strikeout rate, which is just, I mean, that's like a reliever. Um, he's just striking out everyone. And his FIP, his fielding independent pitching was 0.92, which I, I've never seen that before for like a, especially a starter, a, a FIP below one, because he never gives up a home run, he barely walks anybody, and he's striking everyone out. Um, but yeah, he had a tough upbringing because he's from Iwate, same region as, as Shohei Otani. And he lost his father to the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and disaster uh, with the tsunami coming in there. So, uh, yeah, he had a really tough upbringing. But the the monster of the Reiwa era, as they call him, the previous uh, monster was Daisuke. Uh, he was the, the monster of the Heisei era. So uh, Roki is going to be a really special pitcher. I just hope he gets to have a full season uh, next year in, in MPB. Do we think we might uh, see him kind of do the Yamamoto route where he waits till he's like 25, 26 and kind of can command a little bit more of uh, dollars on the free agent market? And then signs with do, the Red Sox. And then signs with the Red Sox, of course. Right, That's right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or do you think he kind of might um, do what Otani did and uh, be subject to the international free agent rules and essentially have to like build himself up through the majors? Yeah, so anytime Roki's been asked about MLB aspirations, he always just kind of downplays them. He doesn't seem to me like a guy like Otani who would do that. I think he would definitely be much more inclined to take the Yamamoto route, especially because in MPB, uh, it is kind of expected that you have to do something big with your team, in his case, the Lote Marines, before you go to MLB. So, for instance... Masataka Yoshida, he gets his Oryx Buffaloes a chip. He has a great performance, you know, I mean, his entire career, but in the Japan series. And then it's like, okay, you did all of this for us now, and now we're going to pay you back by posting you to MLB. Um, Yamamoto, you know, goes without saying three triple crowns, three Sawamura awards, three MVPs, wins one championship, three pennants. Now he's going to MLB. Uh, Roki's Marines haven't done anything yet in the couple of years he's been there. And also he hasn't won any personal accolades just because the sample size hasn't been there. So um, I think the ETA on him for MLB is probably 2027. So he has three years now to really kind of build his resume up. Yamamoto's gone now. So, you know, he he has pretty much, um, you know, the, the title of the best pitcher in, in Japan at this point. And it's up to him to stay on the field, stay healthy, you know, put up the numbers, do it, do whatever it takes to get the Marines a, a championship. Um, and then maybe he can think about going to MLB. There's a uh, second guy out there, too. You also have his jersey in the background as well. Um, Murakami, um, he, I believe he set the all-time MPB record for home runs for a Japanese-born player. So, um what what can fans kind of expect out of him? Yeah, so Munetaka Murakami is one of my favorite players. Uh, as you said, 56 home runs last year was a Japanese-born player record. The MPB record overall is uh, his former teammate, Vladimir Ballantin, who hit 60 in 2013. That was a juiced ball year, but still really special. And, yeah, so he hit 56 home runs last year. He looked like the best hitter on the planet, honestly. He had a 223 weighted runs created plus. Uh, with over 10 war playing third base. So he was really special. But he kind of starts falling off at the end of 2022, goes into a massive slump, 
doesn't do well in the playoffs, doesn't do well in the WBC other than that one walk-off double he hit against Mexico. Um, and then he homered the following day against Merrill Kelly. But overall for him, the WBC was not a good tournament. And then for the first two months of the 2023 MPB season, he was also pretty bad. Like, yes, he takes his walks because he's a super disciplined hitter. So the on-base was good, but he was just striking out way too much, just didn't look like himself. But then in the second half, um, from around June onwards, he looked much more like himself. And he ends up going from, like, you know, a really bad season to a 900 OPS and a 150 WRC+. plus. So it shows you the kind of special player he is, that he can have such a slow start and still hit 31 home runs with, you know, a 900 OPS. He has crazy power, one of the biggest power hitters ever um, in, in Japan, you know, right up there with, like, Hideki Matsui. Uh, great walk rate, super disciplined. He rarely chases, although he does strike out a lot because he has, you know, a huge kind of, uh, he puts a lot into that swing. Um, and yeah, I mean, he has these types of home runs in Japan that I see very few hitters do, especially with a dead ball where he just pokes it the other way and it finds a way to, to go into the stands. Uh, he's not a great defender at third base. He's a little bit on the chubbier end of the spectrum, although he's not that slow. Like, he can steal double-digit bases. Um, so he's not slow, but, you know, I expect him to probably be a first baseman, like, a couple years down the line. But, yeah, I absolutely think he can be a, a huge power threat um, in, in MLB as well, which would probably be 2026 because that's when his contract with uh, the Swallows is going to end. But, uh, yeah, he won a championship already with the Swallows, and I expect him to have an even better 2024 and 2025 with the Swallows. Yeah. Oh, Lordy coming. <laughs> yeah. Are there any other guys like out there that might not be familiar uh, to fans that, you know, are really exciting young players that uh, either might have a great career in the MPB or might uh, come over to the States at some point? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, Japan right now is having a huge kind of influx of, of young talent, guys who are like 21, 22, and just like absolutely uh, tearing up the competition. So I'll just name a few. Uh, first off, my guy back there, I got a jersey of him as well, Chusei Manami, a right fielder um, for the Nippon Ham Fighters. He's um, really stands out because he's he's half black, so you'll, you'll notice him right away on a Japanese field. But, <laughs> I mean, he has crazy power as well, but it's his defense that's so exciting for me. Like, I think he, he he ended up winning the SIS Baseball Defensive Player of the Year for, for MPB, which, um, I mean, I was a part of that voting, but I'm, I'm super happy for him there. He has a cannon of an arm. I would say he has the best arm since Ichiro for a Japanese player, and he has great range as well. So uh, he's only 24, 23, and, um, you know, he has a really high ceiling based on the fact that he could hit 40 home runs while playing elite defense. Um, and then a couple of pitchers that I'd like to point out would be one is Hiroto Takahashi of the Chunichi Dragons. He pitched at the WBC, struck out Mike Trout, great fork ball, and he's only 21, but he sits 95 on the fastball, occasionally runs it up to like 98, 99. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he's a couple more years and I, I can see him being the best pitcher in, in Japan because you know, unlike Roki, he's actually been staying on the field. He's healthy. And he actually kind of has imitated Yoshinobu Yamamoto's mechanics, at least his, like, before he started to throw out of the stretch all the time, he really kind of uh, imitated Yamamoto. So I see him as kind of like a Yamamoto 2.0. And then finally, I would say Yamamoto's, you know, teammate, soon to be former teammate, Shinpeita Yamashita, who is going to take over kind of Yamamoto's ace role. In the, in the rotation. Um, Shinpei Yamashita was 20 years old this year, and he just put up some insane numbers, got injured at the end. So like like Roki, it's a small sample, but he had a 161 ERA as a rookie with a 26% strikeout rate, uh, a 2.24 FIP. So he is a guy that recently threw 100 miles an hour, and I think he's going to be the next big thing in terms of uh, he's going to become an ace with the Oryx Buffaloes to replace Yamamoto. That's probably part of why they're so comfortable with, with getting, you know, with letting Yamamoto go right now is they have Shinpeite Yamashita there as well as a bunch of other young starters like Hiroya Miyagi to uh, take over. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Shinpeite Yamashita, great fork ball, great curve ball, 
you know, upper 90s. So I could see him starting like the finals for Samurai Japan at the 2026 WBC. Yeah, and we'll be there. We'll be uh, all together having a nice beer either in Arizona or Miami, wherever they host it. So we look forward to seeing you there. I'm going to do my absolute best to make it out there. Yeah. My last question for you is, are any of them going to outpitch Matt LeBeau? No. <laughs> Good yeah. Um, I, I do have a, a one final question, and this is a serious one. Um, do you find that, that hitting or uh, pitching translates better to the major league level from Japan? Um, I would say, I mean, it's obviously a case-by-case basis, but in general, I would say pitching translates a little bit better. You look at how many, like MLB Network had like a graphic this year that showed like MLB, like all-time single season rookie strikeout leaders, rookie in quotation marks, because I mean, they're like, you know, Japanese guys that are in their 30s sometimes um, coming over, and it's like everyone who has over 200 strikes at, strikeouts other than Spencer Strider was a Japanese pitcher like Daisuke or Nomo or Senga. So it's like the stuff is, especially nowadays with, with modern technology, we can look at all these like pitch shapes and stuff. Like we know for a fact that Yamamoto's stuff is legit. It's not like even in 2007 with, with Daisuke where there was this mystique around like his gyro ball, like, oh, who is this? <laughs> like mysterious, mysterious pitcher, but Yamamoto's definitely has a stuff in, in MLB. Uh, I can see him being a Cy Young contender next year as, as Kodai Senga was this year. Um, and for hitters, yeah, it's like you got Masataka Yoshida, you have Seiya Suzuki. I think it's often that second year where they make the bigger jump because year one with all the extra travel and learning to hit higher velocity more consistently, you see, you see types of pitches that you would never see in MPB just straight up, like, you know, like uh, Joanne Duran, like 102-mile-an-hour sinker. You just aren't going to see that kind of pitch in MPB, no matter how many great MPB pitchers there are, because that's not a pitch they teach over here. So yeah, um, hitters definitely are going to have a slightly longer adjustment period. But, um, you know, we've seen with, with a guy like Otani showing it on both sides of the ball that it's totally possible for a guy that's had success in MPB for it to translate to the fullest extent and then some uh, at the MLB stage. Yeah, I mean, honestly, when you when you really look at it, like Ichiro, probably the greatest pure hitter in baseball history. Uh, Shohei Otani, possibly the greatest baseball player of all time. Um, do you feel that Japan is is by far the best baseball country when you when you when you think about obviously the, the the population difference between um I mean you know obviously the Dominican Republic is up there US is up there but I mean based on just the overall size and the talent that's come out of there I mean you you have to think that if they have more the same size as the US then I mean it wouldn't even be a debate Yeah I mean I I definitely think so and I'm always you know trying to get Japanese baseball and MPV more respect because I think, you know, on social media, you have, you still have a crowd of people who are like, oh, this guy's going to Japan. That means he's totally washed. That means he sucks. Whereas, you know, I think Japan now has won enough world baseball classic titles. They've had enough superstars go from MPB to MLB where you know, the, the Japanese Japanese pro baseball, amateur baseball deserves a, a certain level of respect. Now, like I said earlier, there are still areas I want to see Japan improve, such as with they're still a little bit adverse to kind of like, like advanced stats. They're still, you know, a little bit too old school on a lot of things like bunting. And they're very still like there, there's a culture there of like, you know, the seniority system. So I think that can limit uh, player development at times, but uh, especially nowadays when we see so many young pitchers now coming out of Japan throwing like 95 plus um, on, on the pitching side, and we see guys like Murakami with so much power, we're seeing Japanese baseball take yet another step forward, another evolution, and I wouldn't be shocked if like, you know, again, you have beyond just Otani, a couple of like, say, the top 10 players in MLB five years from now, like half of them might be Japanese guys. That wouldn't shock me. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, awesome. Well, um, my last question here is for anybody looking to try to get more into Japanese or international baseball, apart from uh, your excellent uh, YouTube channel, are there any resources or um, ways to watch MPB since sometimes they make it a little bit difficult? Yeah, that's another downside of MPB is that they make it very inaccessible for, for a Western audience beyond just the language barrier. Um, unfortunately, for one of the two leagues, the Central League, it's pretty much impossible to legally watch it from outside of Japan. However, the Pacific League, which is the league Yamamoto and, and Roki Sasaki play in, um, there is Pacific League TV for like, you know, a small subscription. You can watch that from anywhere in the world. Um, and as far as other resources go, I would highly recommend the Twitter account, uh, MPB on Reddit. They do great news. Uh, my guy Gaijin Baseball, gotta shout him out for MPB history. And yeah, I mean, if you want to, uh, follow, you know, up to date stats, cause a lot of people ask me, like, how do you find advanced stats for, for MPB? There's, uh, Delta Graphs is like the MPB equivalent of fan graphs. There is a subscription for that as well, but they have English options and you can keep up to date with like advanced MPB stats. Uh, and yeah, otherwise I'll just, you know, plug my own YouTube channel, Yaku Cosmopolitan, uh, and you can find other resources. You know, I'll, I'll give you other resources on there. Yeah. Awesome. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to him on Patreon as well. That's the one that really matters. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, awesome. Well, we really appreciate your time here. It was great talking with you. Is there anything else that you want to just let our audience or the rest of, like, American audience know about Japanese baseball before you head out? Um, not in particular, but I did want to ask you guys one last question about Masataki Yoshida. I wanted to know what you guys expect, what your guys' expectations are for him next year, numbers wise. Yeah, I definitely think, uh, we see more of the first half hitter where less strikeouts, a few adjustments here and there. He kind of came as advertised where he wasn't the best left fielder, didn't have the best, uh, base running or anything like that, but we saw a lot of flashes of excellence, so, um, I can definitely see him being almost like a Luis, um, a Luis Arise, uh, where he's very contact heavy and maybe even a little bit more pop than that. So, um, I, I think we actually see him be more of the all-star type of player that he was in Japan. Honestly, I think he, he had a great first half and he also had in the first half, he had actually like pretty limited protection. Obviously, Devers is always there, but Devers slumped. Uh, Trevor Story was not in the lineup, and Tristan Casas was a, an absolute nothing for the Red Sox in the first half. And realistically, looking at you know next year's team, those are probably your three uh, most dangerous or at least best power hitters. I think with a little added protection, I think it'll give him a little more comfort, a little more kind of freedom to be the hitter he wants to be. Um, and I, I do think that maybe we'll see even a little bit more more power, you know, this year. I mean, he's got the strength; he's a strong, strong dude. Um, you know, once he figures out Fenway where to hit the ball, it's not that big of a, of a stadium. So I think we're going to see a little more power. I, uh, I think his defensive utility, we, we might see an uptick in because we kind of got him as advertised, but he is a, he is a perfectly average left fielder. Sometimes that's all you need. Um, I think we're going to see him planted at first base a couple times. Uh, I think if there's anyone, that's that's a likely candidate to move towards that DH role, at least while Devers is still playing third base. I think that uh, Masataki Yoshida moves into that DH role simply because he doesn't strike out. And I think his potential for pop uh, heavily increases if the team brings on another Japanese player in the offseason. Yeah. Or two. Or two, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just bring in the whole WBC squad. They're pretty good. Yeah. yeah, well, it was semi. <laughs> it was semi-joking, semi-serious. I really think adding a Japanese player, obviously for fans and the team, would be awesome. I think adding a Japanese player for Masataka Yoshida, I think would just give him opportunity to to really focus on his mechanics, speak about it through the same lens. I think I think his opportunity increases if he has that level of communication with another Japanese player. The end. Yeah. <laughs> thanks awesome. so much for coming on yeah it was a blast it definitely got to learn a lot bit uh, more about Japanese baseball so it was very cool definitely yeah thank you guys so much for having me yeah
We'll see you next time. Take care. Hey, man, have a good Friday. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay, I love you, bye. Okay, I love you, bye.